I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the beginning of this chapter together this morning. And Hebrews 7 uh, begins and kicks off now an extensive treatment on the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Uh, his priestly ministry. We've heard mention of it uh, so far in Hebrews. And really the the point that's going to be taking place from Hebrews chapter 7 verse 1 until chapter 10 verse 18 is the superiority of the Son of God as priest over any other priest that has come before him. This morning's message is entitled Melchizedek, High Priest Forever. And how this section is going to begin in chapter 7 is going to lay the foundation for our understanding of Christ as priest uh, by connecting him back to a man who was a priest in the Old Testament, back in Genesis. You think about this morning as you came to church, uh, even before that as you woke up today, whether you were aware of it or not, you needed a priest. You needed somebody who was more powerful than you, someone who was more spiritual than you, uh, who was coming to your aid, someone who would intercede for you, someone who would provide a sacrifice for you, someone who would mediate by bringing you to God, as it were, and connecting you in relationship to him. Obviously, you and I are born separated from God by virtue of our own sinfulness. It's the sinfulness that we inherited from our first father, Adam. It's the sinfulness that we continued to incur, incur through our own sin. And so the author of Hebrews right now wants to tell you about the priestly ministry of Jesus. Now I'm going to confess, there's a part of me, right, whenever you're preaching, uh, that wants novelty. It's just something that you have to confess and forsake. So uh, the idea that I'm going to get up and say the same thing week after week that everyone already knows feels like, um, man, maybe I'd like another job. I'd like a job where I'm going to say something that's, that's new. If you remember when the philosophers would gather on Acts uh, in Acts 17, uh, there they would gather on Mars Hill, and what did they want to hear? Ooh, somebody has something new to say. It was there was novelty. We like to hear something we'd never heard before, and so right, it's always uh, thrilling as a preacher when you discover something new in the Word of God that maybe you haven't studied or thought about before. It's edifying, and then it's also exciting to come and bring and share that with God's people. And so you're looking at Hebrews 7, 1 through 10, 18, and you're saying, all right, we've got about 25 sermons that are essentially different ways of saying the same thing. And then you immediately realize, wow, perhaps as God's people, we need to be told over and over and over in various ways, repeated again and again and again, shown the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so rather than, than be concerned that there's going to be unnecessary repetition, we embrace this as the Lord's kindness to tell us again and again why it is that Jesus is so great. Why is it that you've banked your entire life on Christ? Why is it that you put all of your eggs in one basket? Why is it that you've said that there's no other name that I'm going to confess, no other Savior? Why is it that you've set your entire life now and your eternal destiny in the hands of this man? And friends, the author of Hebrews wants you to know that if you and I walk away from Jesus, then we're without hope in this life and we're without hope in the life to come. Because there's no other solution. There's no other priest. There's no other mediator. There's no other way to have a right relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. 
And so chapter 7 begins to look at this priestly ministry. In the first 10 verses, the author is going to establish the order of Melchizedek. We're going to see what his priesthood was all about this morning in verses 1 through 10. Then the next section, he's going to begin to take the, the Levite priesthood and contrast it with the priesthood of Melchizedek. So we're going to have a little compare and contrast in our next section of chapter 7. That'll be verses 11 through 19. And then finally, demonstrating how this priesthood from Melchizedek is superior in the final part of chapter 7. So all three of these sections in chapter 7 are going to help expand our understanding of who Jesus is by relating him back to this character called Melchizedek. Say it very simply as we understand today, Melchizedek is going to help us understand Jesus. You say, well, the only problem with that is I don't understand Melchizedek very well first. So what we're going to do is we're going to understand Melchizedek first, and then as we understand Melchizedek, it's actually going to help us uh, freshly understand Jesus in a deeper way. And when you read this passage, at first it's going to seem a little bit convoluted, I would guess. That is to me. It's a situation that we're not totally familiar with generally. Uh, but the point is going to be very simple, and I'll just give it to you up front. Here's how he's going to reason. Melchizedek testifies that Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Hey, that's his point. Melchizedek testifies that Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood. How he's going to argue is he's going to show how Melchizedek corresponds to Jesus, how they're related. Then he's going to demonstrate that Melchizedek is greater than Aaron, who came from the descendant of Levi. So I'll say Aaron and Levi back and forth, same stock there in terms of the family of Israel. And then ultimately, because of that, Jesus' priesthood must be greater than Levi's. So the whole argument is going to be how Melchizedek corresponds to Jesus, how Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and Levi, and therefore Jesus must be greater than Levi. So that being said, let's read the passage before us this morning, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Actually, you know what? Go back to chapter 6, verse 1. Just kidding. We're not going to read all of chapter 6. Uh, go back to chapter 6, for real this time, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also a king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever." See how great this man was? To whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the case, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. 
As you see as we go through that, there's a few things there as you read it that it's going to be a little, little topsy-turvy, maybe a little bit unclear. The outline is actually very simple for our passage this morning. The author is arguing and, and explaining to you and me why it is that Christ provides your sure and steady hope. That's why I read verses 19 and 20. Last week we saw that Christ is the sure and steady anchor of the soul. Uh, he is the secure anchor that will be the, the ballast when your ship is tossed, when your faith is, is lambasted by the waves of this world and your own sinful doubts and fears, Christ will be the sure and steady anchor of the soul. He will be your hope. Well, he begins to talk about Melchizedek in verse 20, and he says, now I want to explain to you why it is that Jesus is your sure and steady hope. First, he's an ultimate, or the eternal king priest, and secondly, he is superior to Abraham. I want to set this up, and then we'll begin to get into our passage this morning. Uh, when you begin to think about uh, the nature of this struggle that the Hebrews are going through, um, I find myself challenged to, to try to, to really grasp their circumstances. Uh, they were so deeply Jewish when this book came upon them. And you and I are not deeply Jewish. Right? The, the cultural norms are foreign. Uh, even many of the practices of the Old Testament, if we're honest, we kind of have a general idea of how they work, uh, but not a, not a strong working knowledge. And so, so far in pastoral ministry, as I meet with people who might have doubts or questions about the faith, I have yet to sit down with someone who says, you know what, I've trusted in Christ, but I'm really struggling. And the reason why I'm struggling is, how is it that Jesus is a priest when he's not a Levite? I haven't had that question yet. And actually, it's not one that I anticipate coming up. Right? To, to us, whether Jesus is the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Judah, a little bit, if we're honest, potato, potato. It's just kind of, I mean, okay, we understand that he's not of the Levitical priesthood, but it's not a hang-up. It's not a stumbling block to trusting in Christ that he didn't come from the same lineage as all the other priests. But if you were a Jew, it would. If you're a Jew, that would be challenging. Start thinking like a Jew for a second, and you realize you've got 1,500 years of almost what we would experience as church history, where the priests came from the Levitical line. 1,500 years of church practice. And so I begin to think, okay, what would it have been like to be in this congregation, to have come out of Judaism, to have trusted in Christ, now you're kind of wavering. There's a little bit of a pull, maybe a draw to go back. I thought, you know, the clearest parallel, although it, it doesn't correspond perfectly, would be the few people I've met who were raised in Roman Catholicism, heard the gospel, trusted in Jesus Christ, made a profession of faith in the, the free gospel of grace, believed that justification was by faith alone. They got baptized. They started serving in the church. They were growing. And then they found, I'm beginning to be drawn back. I'm finding within me the desire to return to the faith of my family and my parents, to that which was familiar. There's a certain comfort. I, I actually like hearing the Father pronounce the blessing. I find a comfort in the veneration of the saints. I miss the rosary. I miss the mass. I miss the confessional booth. 
I miss the dogmas. I miss the Catholic Church. And to add to that, in the midst of their profession of faith in Christianity, they were experiencing, again, as we've said so many times before, pressure for coming to Christ that they would not have if they had gone back. And so I think you begin to at least understand maybe um, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, what the people were going through who were tempted to be drawn back. Right? And even many times, if you talk to someone who's, who's wrestling between Catholicism and the true gospel, what do they talk about? Well, there's, there's just so much history. There's so many years that I can trace back. And, and that line of tradition is so strong. And so for these Jews, you have 1,500 years of the Levitical priesthood of a certain way of doing worship. It was familiar to your family. The sights and sounds of the temple you associated with nearness to God. The blood sacrifices, right? The smell of the burnt flesh and the incense and all of the, all of the sights and sounds of the temple to you was what you had known as nearness to God. And so for these Hebrews... They're being told to trust Christ and to not let go, to not turn away. So, the author is saying that you are to have confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ because he comes and provides you something that you cannot find anywhere else. Now, if you're following along with us through Hebrews, you remember that Melchizedek first appeared in Hebrews back in chapter 5, verse 6. There, the, the author was speaking about the, the eternal sonship of Jesus, and he quotes Psalm 110 and says, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He begins to talk about uh, this priesthood, and then in verse 11 of chapter 5, he says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. So how this is working here in the, the flow of thought, um, right? sometimes you might have a friend who, who likes to tell a story, and they have a hard time completing the story because partway into the story, there's another story that would be really good to tell. And so kind of as I say, you're going and you get to a topic and, you know, I need to explain this topic before. And, and then sometimes if they're really bad even, then there's like the next side topic and then they forget the original story that they were telling. A few of you are snickering because you know that person. A few of you are that person. The Apostle Paul sometimes when he's writing does this. He'll begin to write and it seems like literally we're writing a letter and in the process of writing a letter, we start to get off on a little bit of a tangent, maybe not on purpose, and then we'll bring it back around. When the writer of Hebrews stops talking about Melchizedek in chapter 5, verse 11, he's not distracted. It's not a detour. We say this would be more like a, a teacher in a classroom who's teaching the class, and things are getting a little unruly. And the teacher says, okay, t we need to stop. We need to call a timeout. We need to break out the big boy voice. Right? We need to realign our thinking. You need to listen up. There's an authority structure here. There's an importance of listening and paying attention. Your grade depends upon it. I need you to focus. So the author here begins to talk about Melchizedek in chapter 5. He's about to launch into this exposition on the forever priesthood of Jesus Christ and what it means for these people. And he says, I need to warn you real quick. You guys aren't listening to what I'm saying. You're hearing the message of Christ and it's like, just any other message that you'd hear in the newspaper or in a book you're reading that's a novel. You just, you kind of, you hear it and you're unchanged, you're unaffected, you're not taking this word to heart. And so he's warning them, as we saw, beginning in chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through to chapter 6, verse 20, where he begins to encourage them. And now he's picking back up with that line of argument. 
What's interesting was he said back in chapter 5, it's hard to explain because of your hearing. Melchizedek is going to be a high Christology. It's hard to take in. The problem is not that it's such a difficult topic or that I'm not a good communicator. The problem is you're not spiritually in a place where you can ingest it. And so what I love by his example here is what does he do? He doesn't lower the bar. He doesn't say that truth is too hard, so we're going to dumb it down. He says, listen up. And now here's the whole deal. I'm going to give you the full meal deal. I'm putting the bar right here. You might have to go back and meditate on this again and again and again. You might need some help to think through it. But I'm going to give you the full truth about this forever priest because it's beneficial for your soul. And if you're struggling to keep up, come back to it again and again and again until it sinks in to your soul. And so this is what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's beginning to talk about Melchizedek. And so you are probably just chomping at the bit. You want to know who Melchizedek is? You say, let's just get to it. We're going to get to it. So here we go. Chapter 7, verse 1. This enigmatic character, the curious case of Melchizedek. The author introduces him again, uh, as he has just said that Jesus is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him apportioned a tenth of everything. Now this is uh, the first time that Melchizedek appears really, I mean here in Hebrews at least, in the New Testament. It's the only place that he appears. I want you to think about how unusual that is for just a minute. Do you remember the apostolic preaching? What are we used to hearing Jesus is? Jesus is the son of David. Uh, So he's related to David in the Old Testament. Uh, Right? Jesus is uh, coming and uh, he's being connected in various ways with characters in the Old Testament. Born a son of David, born in the city of David. Uh, Paul speaks of that in his apostolic preaching. But Jesus never talks about his association with Melchizedek, right? None of the apostles ever talk about it. So this is kind of a kind of feels like a curveball. It really comes and just appears on the scene as something that we have not seen before. And so Melchizedek is going to serve as a a prototype for Christ. There's a typical relationship here, and by type you have a type and an anti-type. And so what Melchizedek is uh, going to serve as is is a demonstration that teaches us certain things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in a type, what you have is thing one and thing two, and certain attributes that correspond between the two. It's not everything about them. Uh, For example, we think of the the ark being a type of our salvation, Noah's ark, right? It corresponds to God's deliverance. But the fact that the ark is made out of wood and the cross is made out of wood, that's just an incidental connection. It's, it's not a, a typical relationship. The type is how God is delivering in the ark of salvation and what he would do through Jesus on the cross. And so Melchizedek here is, is not really a, a prophecy and fulfillment. Uh, rather, it's establishing a category by which we're going to understand the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Melchizedek is mentioned and quoted by the author here in Genesis chapter 14. And so I want you to turn back to Genesis 14. And we're going to see here what it is that Melchizedek is up to, who he is, what he was doing, and how it relates to Jesus. Genesis chapter 14. Abraham is is just coming back from battle. It was a pretty intense battle. Lot got himself into some trouble. And Abraham and Lot are related So Abraham goes to save Lot's bacon, 
and uh, challenges uh, this group of kings uh, with his men, and they prevail. Uh, they win in the battle. And uh, so Abraham now is, is returning in verse 17 of chapter 14 from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Uh, so there was a whole group of kings uh, that they had just defeated. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And while he's meeting the king of Solomon, uh, excuse me, of, of Sodom, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brings out bread and wine. So as a side note, he happens to be a priest of God Most High. And he, that is Melchizedek, blessed him, that is Abraham, and said, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And so concludes the story of Melchizedek. It's fascinating. It's, there's barely anything there. I mean, if there wasn't anything in Hebrews, if we're just being honest, you would read right over that and you would think almost nothing of it. It just seems like a little throwaway couple of verses. And yet the writer of Hebrews here is, is bringing Melchizedek to the forefront and he's beginning to talk about this relationship that he has with Jesus. And I love it that he, he sticks right to the text. And so he introduces him as Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Now, Salem is where David would later set up Jerusalem. Okay, So this is the, uh, the city before it became incorporated, if you will. Uh, before it became the city of David, uh, before it was conquered by David, it was, it was ruled by King Melchizedek. So when we think of kings, we think of Right? A monarchy maybe over an empire. Uh, kings in the Old Testament would often be over a, a city, a small area. Right? You have the king of Sod Sodom there. You have the, the king here over Salem. And, interestingly enough, he's also a priest. Now, this is the first mention of a priest anywhere in the Bible. Uh, he's a priest. Uh, most religions have a priest. Uh, they have a seance. They have a guru. They have someone that you come to to get access to God. Uh, this is a true priest because he's a priest of the Most High God. And so uh, this priest, who is doing exactly what God wants him to, approaches Abraham as he's coming back from battle. He's just left this military conquest to rescue Lot. He gives him bread and wine, and then he blesses him. What's the nature of this blessing? Well, it's, it's telling him, Abraham, I want you to be blessed by the God who possesses heaven and earth, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So he's coming to telling Abraham, look, you just had this, this pretty massive battle that you won. And yet it was the Lord who did that. The Lord is the one who fought the battle for you. And so he blesses Abraham. And then, strangely enough, Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. Um, the everything would have been the spoils of war. So uh, you go to battle, you defeat the kings, and then what happens? You take their stuff, and then you get their stuff, and in this case, you give a tenth, a tithe, 10%. Um, it, was, it was usually the best of the first fruit, so you'd have, have lined up all the goods that you took from the kings, and uh, you would sort out what the very best is, and then you would give that. Uh, it's really a special way to think about offering something to the Lord, right? I mean, we think of right 10% of our paycheck, and it doesn't really matter which 10% you take. It's all the same. Uh, but you start thinking about things, right? How hard it is if, if you've got two pieces of pizza 
and you're trying to figure out, you know, do I take the one with more toppings or do I hand that across the table to my friend, you know, or, or I just got that scoop of ice cream that had the extra fudge and went into the bowl. Is that bowl the one that I'm going to keep for myself or am I going to give it to, to someone else? This idea that you would take the spoils and you would take the, the things that were the most desirable, the most valuable and precious, and you would give 10% of those. And so strangely now we have Abraham paying 10% of what he just got in battle to Melchizedek. And so this is all that you have in the Old Testament. Uh, other than Psalm 110. And so now we're going to go back to Hebrews and we're going to see exactly how the author begins to develop this character, Melchizedek. He says here that Melchizedek is first by translation of his name, I'm in verse 2, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, that is a king of peace. So uh, when you read Melchizedek, uh, all that's happened is we've taken the Hebrew letter, letters and we've corresponded them to English. Uh, so it probably would have been guttural like Melchizedek or something in Hebrew, but essentially the same name that we have in English is what his name was in Hebrew. And Melech is king and Sedek is righteousness. So his name literally means king of righteousness. And in the Old Testament, your name was very important. Your name said something about you, about your character here. And so he's known as his character that he's uh, a ruler who is righteous. And then Salem, of course, means peace. So there's this double significance of this character who's both a king and a priest, and he's known for righteousness, and he's known for peace. So immediately you begin to think, okay, righteousness and peace, those are essential characteristics of God who rules and godly rulers. And in fact, Isaiah, when he begins to prophesy about the coming Messiah, says he's going to do what? He's going to be the prince of peace, and he's going to be a king, Isaiah 32, who reigns in righteousness. So you begin to see that Melchizedek as a king priest who rules righteously and brings about peace is very similar to the ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ would have. And what happens is uh, we understand that that's pretty straightforward, but then we get to verse three and this is where we begin to get jammed up because this is now a commentary on Genesis. So this is not a direct quote. This is now the author of Hebrews doing an exposition. He begins to write a commentary on Genesis. And he says of Melchizedek in verse 3, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Dun, dun, dun. This is the part that now introduces confusion and maybe controversy. That's probably overstated. Uh, but this is where now people begin to think theophany, pre-incarnate son of God, perhaps, that came down. There's, there's no genealogy, no father, no mother, no beginning, no end. Um, kind of sounds like, you know, just this guy comes down tractor beam, he, he vaporizes, he appears, and suddenly he's there and he serves this role and then beams back up to heaven. And that's certainly one view. If you want to have that view, uh, you can. It's incorrect, but we will let you have it. you look at the text here, there's nothing that indicates that Melchizedek is anything more than human. So what is the author after when he says that there's not genealogy? Well, he's thinking bloodlines here. So when he's saying that he's without all of these things, and, and in the original it's just piled up, without father. Um, the, the alpha primitive it makes something negative. Uh, right? So we say amillennial, we mean no kingdom, without a kingdom. So he, he's uh, a father, he's without father, a mother, without mother, a genealogy, without genealogy, 
without beginning of days and without end of days. So five things that Melchizedek does not possess, five things that he's without. And yet those are very important. The author of Hebrews is saying there are certain details that, that Moses never wrote about in Genesis. And the details that he left out actually form an argument from silence that is very important. He's saying the fact that he doesn't have any genealogy, that he has no recorded mom and dad, doesn't mean that he didn't have a mom and dad. It means that it wasn't materially significant to his priesthood. No genealogy. Well, how important is genealogy in Genesis? Eleven genealogies exist in Genesis. How important is genealogy in the Bible? How does Matthew open? Man, a very clear case. Here's the bloodline. Why? Because you need to be resting assured that Jesus is in fact the son of David. He is the promised son of David. And so we're going to show you in great detail everyone who begat everyone all the way back to David so that you know where he came from because he was David's promised son. So you go to Melchizedek and what happens? Just honorable mention. No genealogy, no mom or dad. So the text is not saying he was, he was supernaturally conceived or he had no father or he had no mother. The idea is that that nowhere does the author of Genesis feel compelled to say, here's when he was born, here was who he was begat by, and here was when he died. So he appears without those things. See, genealogy was critical in the validation of even a priest. See, if you didn't have the paperwork to prove your, prove your origin, you couldn't be a priest. This actually happened in the exile. So the Jews went to Babylon, they're exiled, they come back, some people lost some paperwork while they were gone in exile, which makes sense. And in Nehemiah chapter 7, they're seeking their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies. They couldn't find them in the rolls. And so what happens? They were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. You don't have the right paperwork. You can't prove your bloodline. Guess what? You can't have you serve as priest. You've got to be able to show us the test. You've got to be able to show us here the validation, the paperwork, the heritage, the bloodline. And so Melchizedek is being presented as a priest, and the author here is highlighting, hey, the fact that he was not given any genealogy is really unusual and distinct, and you need to pay attention to that. It actually means something. A different order, a different administration. And then you begin to realize, well, Jesus, of course, is not a Levite. And that's going to be the very argument that this author makes in verses 13 and 14, that Jesus is from a different tribe. And so if you were a Jew right now, this would be a strike against Jesus. It would be a a strike against trusting in him uh, that he never came from the tribe of Levi. And yet his point is going to be that he actually came from a better priesthood. He came from a better order. He came from a different order. It had to be that way. The Jews, they didn't want a new priesthood. They liked the old familiar one. The one they'd always known. The one they'd been accustomed with. The one they'd visited year after year after year. And so when you think of Melchizedek, what you're to think of is this priest who who came because God appointed him to a role. And it was going to be outside of his, his normal covenant working with Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. And when you read the idea that he, he had no, no beginning of days and no end, the significance of that is explained in the next part of the verse, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. 
Notice he doesn't say Melchizedek is the son. He doesn't say that this was the son of God coming and establishing a priesthood before he would establish his next priesthood. Rather, the text says that he resembles the son. He was like the son. Bruce describes the relationship in this way. Jesus is not portrayed after the pattern of Melchizedek, but Melchizedek is made conformable to the son of God. Melchizedek matches the pattern of Christ, not the other way around. And so when you think of Melchizedek, what's significant about the fact that he doesn't have his birth date and his death written about in Genesis? When you look at Melchizedek, you just see him operating as a priest. You never see his retirement party. Right? It's just a snapshot in time. And so Melchizedek then is, is memorialized as an actively functioning priest. That's how we remember him. The last activity that we saw him do was not blessing his children and having somebody put a, a hand under his thigh before he, he passed away and saying what he wanted done with his bones. No, the last thing we see him doing is, is blessing Abraham as an active priest. And so in that sense, he's, he's not a priest forever in that he's still living and still acting as a priest, but he's memorialized forever, remembered as an active priest. So how do you know that's what the author is getting at? Well, just trace this out in Hebrews with me. Look at chapter 5, verse 6. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Look at chapter 6, verse 20 where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7.3, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, He continues a priest forever. Hebrews 7.17, For it is witnessed of Him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7.21, this one who is made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Hebrews 7.24, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Hebrews 7.28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made a priest perfect forever. Understand what the author is getting at here. Once you understand that this priesthood is unlike anything that's ever been seen before, because this is a priesthood that endures forever. Jesus comes, and when he comes and acts on your behalf as a priest, he's never going to die, he's never going to tire, he's never going to wear out, he's never going to pass the baton to someone else. He endures in a priesthood forever. Why is it that Christ provides assurance, steady hope? Because he is an eternal king priest. And so, very quickly then, the author is going to tie this off in the last five verses from verse 4 to 10. And I want to show you how he develops this argument. Verse 4 begins, see, behold, um, look and pay attention. This is John chapter 1, and we beheld his glory as coming from the Father, full of grace and truth. You're to behold how great this man Melchizedek was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So he's just established that, that this is an eternal priesthood uh, that endures forever. And now he's beginning to argue the question in everyone's mind is, yeah, but he didn't come from the line of Aaron. And so he's saying, I want you to see how great this man was to whom Abraham paid 
a tenth of the spoils. Why was this a big deal that Abraham paid him? Well, verse 5, it's the descendants of Levi who received the priestly office. They have the commandment and the law to take the tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. But those also are descended from Abraham. The Lord commanded in Deuteronomy, he commanded in Numbers, he reaffirmed in Chronicles, that God's people were to provide for Levi. The, the 12 geographical regions of the tribes were divided up throughout Israel, and then the Levites were left out. They had no inheritance in the land. Think about when, when Israel was blessing his children, he actually kind of pronounced a curse on Levi where they were going to be scattered. And then the Lord took that and said, don't worry about the fact that you're not going to have a, a land inheritance. I will be your inheritance. And what we're going to do is the people are all going to contribute a tithe, 10%, to sustain you and provide for your needs. The Levites get a tenth. And so what the author is doing here in a very interesting scenario you see, he's saying, I want you to consider with how great the patriarchs are that by Abraham paying a tenth to Melchizedek, he was actually testifying to something greater. And I just find this astounding. And if you were a Jew, this would be uh, very disruptive to your normal thinking. Right? Who are the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, some passages would stop there. Acts 7 would indicate and call the, the 12 sons patriarchs as well as they each were over a tribe. But the idea is that if you were a Jew, no matter what, you came from Abraham. Genetically, of his family, same stock. And Isaac, genetically, and his stock. And Jacob, Genetically in his stock. These are the patriarchs. Now who was the greatest of all the patriarchs? It was Abraham. right? He was the first. He was the best. He was the highest. And so if you read through Genesis, and you were given a quiz, you're on a game show, and you're asked who is the, who is the greatest in Genesis, eh, you buzz in, right? Abraham, easy. He's the patriarch. He's, he's the first of the nation. That would be a pretty good answer. It's probably what I would answer. You could argue for it and make a case. And in fact, if you were just to look at how many times Abraham appears, I looked it up this week, 59 times in Genesis. 59 times he's spoken about in Genesis. How many times does Melchizedek's name appear in Genesis? Just once. Just barely gets mentioned. And you hear what the author of Hebrews is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that, that Abraham was paying a tenth to Melchizedek because Melchizedek was actually greater than Abraham. Let that sink in for just a minute. He's saying that there was something that was, that was greater here than the, than the patriarchs, because here you have a patriarch who's paying homage to a king priest who's a Gentile. He's not even born of the line. He's, he's not a Jew by birth. Melchizedek comes in as a no-name, and he is greater than Abraham. You suddenly think about all the connections and you say, oh, I remember when Jesus was standing there before the Jews and he said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. And so when you look at Melchizedek, you're to understand that, that what's being represented here is, is not that Jesus would be inferior because he wasn't a Levite. Quite the contrary, he wasn't a Levite because he was greater. He came from a completely different order, a completely different priesthood a completely different significance. 
And in fact, that's exactly what the author says as he argues. This man, Melchizedek, who doesn't have his descent from them, so he's not even a Jew by birth, gets tithes from Abraham, blessed him who had the promises. He acted as his priest. And if you want to argue with it, verse 7, it's beyond dispute. It's inarguable that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So um, pay attention to the fact that it's, it's now the, the priest who pronounces the blessing who's over Abraham and let that sink in and demonstrate the case. It goes on and says, in the one case, ties are received by mortal men, but in the case of the other, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. And then he begins this very curious way of speaking in verse 9. He says, one might even say. This feels like a logical fallacy, but it's, it's, it's in Scripture. So this is how he's reasoning. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes for Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So what's he saying? Well, there was seven generations between Abraham and, and Aaron. Right? I think it was four or five um, so Abraham would have been Levi's great-great-grandfather. And so essentially what he's saying here is, um, when your great-great-grandpappy paid tithes to Melchizedek, essentially you were too. Even though you weren't born yet, you were in his loins, uh, you were still planned to come. And, and so it's viewed as this family solidarity that what my great-grandpa did also involved me. And so he's saying, lest you think that it was just Abraham who was under the greatness of Melchizedek. I want you to understand that the, the whole priestly order, Levi was still involved. He was still implicated in Abraham paying that tithe as well. So why is it that the author is arguing all of this? Well, because he wants these Jews to understand that when Christ came, the Levitical priesthood was obsolete. You couldn't trust in it anymore and be saved. It's like those letters that you've probably gotten, the, the real ID card that's coming to a place near you soon, right? If you don't upgrade to the real ID card, you're not going to be able to travel certain places. The, the original driver's license that's worked for decades isn't going to work anymore because now you need the real ID card. And as soon as that has been put in place, the old driver's license becomes obsolete and it doesn't work for the same things that it used to work for. So the Levitical priesthood was a very good thing. It ministered to God's people for 1,500 years. It was the very means by which God had ordained that they would draw near to him. And yet when Christ came, that whole thing is abolished. It's fulfilled. And now in Christ, you can't ever go back. You try and go back, you lose Christ. And Christ is the only priest who can save your soul. My friends, Melchizedek testifies to a new order, a better priesthood, one that is administered by the divine Son, and this is tremendously helpful. So how do you apply a passage like this. I'll just ask you, what do you think of Jesus? What do you think of his priesthood in your life? Is his priesthood where you go to deal with your sin? Is his sacrifice the one that you're trusting in? Is his intercession what fills you with hope and confidence? Is the promise that he's forever what you endure with each day when you wake up? I mean, the testimony here is simply to trust in this great high priest who's been provided for you. My friends, if you understand your sin and your need for Christ, then you will see Jesus as the high priest that you need. So many times so far in Hebrews, the author has shown us the, the mercy of Jesus Christ, uh, his empathy towards sinners, 
his understanding of our temptation and his solidarity with us. Now what he's arguing for is his enduring power and his greatness as a high priest. Uh, It's the backside of that for the confidence. And so this sermon is to convince you that Jesus is powerful and he will never fail fail you if you put your trust in him to serve as your high priest. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, thank you for the richness of uh, your truth and the depths of it. Uh, Lord, to think about how uh, you could have orchestrated salvation any way that you chose, and yet you wanted to work things together with what would have seemed to be a a random occurrence, a happenstance meeting um, out in the land of Canaan uh, between a king and Abraham, uh, simply to begin to teach us as your people and to testify to the greatness of your son. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would conquer our unbelief. And um, Lord, if we are in the depths of bondage to sin, uh, when we are fearful about our sin, Lord, when we are denying our sin, um, that we would be ministered to and see uh, the high priest whom we have, uh, who lives forever to make intercession for us. We love you so much, and we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.